I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the 84th Psalm, looking particularly at verses 5, 6, and 7. Psalm 84, verses 5, 6, and 7. Blessed is the men whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. We are, in other words, continuing our study and consideration of this great psalm in which this men, and undoubtedly it was King David himself, the evidence internal and external suggests that very strongly, and probably it was a psalm written by him at the time of the rebellion and the insurrection of his own son Absalom. When David, you remember, thus suddenly taken unawares, had to escape for his life. And there are graphic accounts of the whole incident in some of the historical books of the Old Testament. How he literally had to flee for his life and found himself wandering through a wilderness. And wondering what was going to happen to him and what his future was going to be. Well, now his whole object in writing the psalm as we have been seeing, has been just to report the fact that to him nothing matters so much in this life and in this world as true religion. It's a psalm which has been written to celebrate the glories and the wonders and the benefits of the truly religious life. He keeps on saying that. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. That's how he begins. You remember how he ends? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. And in between, he has said it many times. That, I say, is his one great theme. That's the thing that he really is setting out to say. And he does it, of course, in order that he may encourage others to realize the importance of a life truly lived under God and under God's blessing and benediction. Now, we have seen how the, the psalmist is very careful to define what he means by true religion, because there are false notions current as to what is meant by religion. We all tend to think that we know what religion is by instinct. But when you bring those various ideas and Hold them in the light of the, of the biblical teaching. You discover at once how far they are from what is described here and how many of them are entirely erroneous and are indeed the very exact opposite of what we have here revealed. So he starts with it. And he lets us know at once that the essence of true religion is to know God. That is the whole of religion, to know God. Not to know things about him, that comes in. Not to have certain views of life, that comes in. The essence of religion is really and truly to know God. So that you can address him as this man does and say, My King and my God. 
You see, he tells us that his heart and his flesh cry out for the living God. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. There's nothing, he says, that matters finally save this. Now, this is the essence of true religion. It isn't just a matter of morality. It is that. That's included. But to make that the end of religion, the chief thing in religion, is to rob religion of, his, of its central glory. It's to know God. He's told us this. He's also taken uh, the precaution of telling us where and how exactly and only God can be known. And he says the place where he is known is at his altars. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a rest for herself, where she may lay her young. Where is it? Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts. I must start with this, my dear friends. It's no use going on to consider the benefits of Christianity unless you know something about Christ. It's at the altars that God is known. Yes, the altar of sacrifice. There is no knowledge of God except in Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the sacrifice that is placed upon the altar. He hath made his soul an offering for sin. No man, he says himself, cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But by him we can come. Very well, he's told us all about this. And then having thus laid down these fundamental and essential principles, without which I say there is no point in proceeding, he has gone on to describe to us something of the benefits and the blessings that ensue upon this knowledge of God and being in this place and position where God can bless us. Now, last Sunday night we considered one of these things. And incidentally, let me remind you of the fact that there is nothing that is so remarkable about this particular psalm as uh, the way in which the psalmist uses his images and pictures and his analogies. He was a poet, of course. And the poet generally puts his truths in the form of pictures. He uses symbols. And this man was a poet, the sweet singer of Israel. And you remember that last Sunday night uh, we found him comparing himself to a sparrow and to a swallow. And uh, we saw, you remember, that he did that in order to tell us that the first and one of the greatest and the most blessed results of true religion and knowledge of God in Christ is that we are given a place of rest. We find a sanctuary. We find a place of safety. A place of peace and of protection. And above all, we find that place where we can lay our young, where the most priceless and precious thing that we have can be put in safety. Oh, the chief thing about Christianity is that it safeguards the soul. This thing which, according to our Lord, is more precious than the whole world. What shall it profit a man? Though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul, oh, the precious character of the soul, well, here is a place where you can leave it. Leave it in the safe keeping of the strong arm of the Son of God, and it will be kept forever. Lay your young there. Very well, there is our first picture. But now this evening we come on to another picture. 
And I think the order in which the psalmist puts these things is not without significance. I have a feeling that this is still the right order. So we come in these verses that we are looking at tonight to the second thing. What's this? What's the second great boon and blessing that Christianity confers upon us? Well, to put it in the form of a principle, it is this. It brings order into our lives. Where do you find that, sir? Well, listen again. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. That's his secret, you see. He keeps on repeating that. The secret of this man is that his strength is in God. Not in himself, in God. He's realized that God is the Lord of hosts. And he's discovered him at the altar. He's found the way to him. Ah, his strength is in God. Very well. But then this is what follows. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are ways. Now, I read to you here the authorized translation. And, of course, these men, they've added certain words that are not in the original. I read here, blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. But there's nothing in the original about of them. What the psalmist wrote was just this. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are ways. And what does he mean by ways? Well, the very word he used means this. A made road. A road that has been made deliberately. That's the true meaning of this word, way. Blessed is the man who has made roads, constructed thoroughfares. In his heart. Very well. Now then, here we see that the psalmist is employing another very graphic picture. What does he mean? What is his teaching? Well, I'm putting it in this way as a principle that one of the leading results of the Christian faith is that it brings order into our lives. Let's follow him and use his picture. The heart of the man who is not a Christian, the heart of the religious person, irreligious person, is like a pathless wilderness. Now, you may have read uh, of settlers uh, in early years in the United States or in Canada or some other land that has only been discovered in the last few centuries and you may have read descriptions of how when the settlers first arrived and landed, they found nothing but a kind of endless bush, same in Australia. There it was, a virgin soil, a virgin country. No roads, no pathways, trees and shrubs, and all manner of herbs growing, and it was impossible to work your way through a kind of wilderness with a jungle. And it was almost impossible to move. They could only move a few steps at a time. And they had to beat a path out for themselves. Now that's the kind of picture that the psalmist uh, very clearly has in his mind. The heart of the irreligious person, the heart of the man who is not a Christian, is a kind of pathless wilderness. It's uncharted. It's never been cleared. There are no paths there, there are no roads, there are no highways, it hasn't been mapped out. Everything is tangled up and mixed up, and there's, when you look at it, you can't see where you can go in any direction whatsoever. 
Not only that, there are all these ups and downs, high hills and deep valleys. The whole thing is in a kind of natural state, and it's uh, quite uncharted, and it's never been prospected, and the whole thing is in a state of utter confusion. Now the psalmist says that by way of contrast. And it's very important that we should understand his teaching because his teaching is nothing but an accurate description in detail of what we all are by nature in this life and in this world as the result of the fall and as the result of the sin of the first men. Our lives, I say, as they are untouched by the power of God are simply like a pathless wilderness. What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. That the uh, natural man, the man who is not a Christian, really has no view or philosophy of life. That is the trouble with men and women who are outside the life of God. They've got no clear ideas. They've never really thought it out. It is, I say, like this great territory which hasn't been mapped out, which hasn't been chartered, and the great roads have not been run through it. It's just a hopeless tangle. Everything's mixed up, and there's no rhyme nor reason. Everything is taken for granted. There is no order or system at all in their lives. Am I being unfair? Well, I just ask you, if you're not a Christian, to look into your own mind, or I ask you to talk to others, I ask you to read biographies, and you will find that this is undoubtedly the case. They may adopt some temporary view, but the vast majority don't even seem to do that. Life is just taken for granted, and men and women live from hand to mouth and from day to day. There's no scheme, there's no system, there's no understanding in their lives to use the words of Matthew 1, they've never seen life steadily, they've never seen it whole. It's quite uncharted. In the same way we can say of it that there is no plan in it and no purpose. The life of so many today is, is entirely aimless. They don't really live, they just exist. They don't sit down and say, well, now then, what am I doing in this world? What am I altogether? What is man? What is life about? And what am I meant to do with my life in this world? What are these strange intimations that I feel from time to time that I'm meant for something bigger and greater? What is it all? Ah, the thoughts may come, but they dismiss them. They've never faced them. They don't understand themselves. They don't understand life and its meaning and its purpose. And I say there's no rhyme or reason about their life. It's not set on a definite course. There's no plan, no purpose in it all. They just are the victims of uh, what may happen to them. If a bit of good fortune comes, they're happy. If it's bad fortune, they become miserable and disconsolate. Their lives are at the mercy of other people and what other people may do or say or think. They're not in control. They don't know where they are. The thing isn't mapped out. And that leads to my next point, which is this, that they've got no sense of direction. There is no goal. 
not having any roads in their lives. They can't say, I'm going to set out from here in order to arrive there. There is no road. And they have no objective in life at all. They've got nothing to look forward to. Have you noticed sometimes uh, when you've read the biographies of men who are not Christians how prominently this comes out? I must confess it always saddens me when I read of a man who's been great, if you like, as a politician or as a singer or as an artist or something like that. And here at last they've reached an age when they can no longer carry on. The man has lost his voice, perhaps, or uh, he's become too old to get new ideas. And he sits down and he writes his autobiography. And what is it? Well, it's all looking back. They never look forward. And you somehow feel it as you go on reading the book. You say, how many more years has he got to go? He's coming to the end of his career, and what then? Well, there's nothing. They recall the moments of their triumphs. The time when they did their big and their great... And it's very thrilling, it's very wonderful. But uh, there's nothing to look forward to. Uh, it just seems to have come and have gone. There wasn't a steady purpose. There was no goal, and at the end, they're left with nothing. Just emptiness, just nothing at all. The road seems to have gone so far, then there's a sudden end, as it were. There's nothing, there's no direction. But above all, and perhaps one of the saddest things of all about this trackless, pathless kind of heart and of life is this. That when they find themselves in a crisis or in an emergency, there is nowhere where they can go for help and for aid and for sustenance. There they are, you see, living this kind of heedless, thoughtless, unplanned life without any direction or purpose, without ever having taken true thought for just taking things as they came. And at last they find themselves in a great emergency. Something terrible has gone wrong. Illness, perhaps, or the illness of a dear one, some loss, financial or otherwise, some calamity. Something's gone wrong, and they're in a real crisis. And there's nowhere where they can go because there's no road. They may have heard that there's some great power that can help over there. But how to get there? It'll take so long to go through the brushwood, to go through this trackless waste, and they may never arrive. They've never planned it out. So they're left to themselves. It all comes down upon them, and there's nowhere where they can go. There are no roads in their lives. There are no highways. It's nothing but a trackless waste. Now, am I exaggerating? Am I being unfair when I suggest that that is the life, it seems to me, of the vast majority of people in this world tonight? I wonder whether I'm addressing anybody in that very situation at this moment. Have you sat down and considered life and its meaning and its purpose? Are you in control of yourself? Do you know where you're going? Have you an object and a purpose? Have you got a great highway that you can run along in the hour of your need? To that source of supply and of help without which you're lost and completely finished. Now I say that this, alas, is the tragedy of man as he is as the result of sin. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know where he's going. 
and especially doesn't know it. In the hour of his greatest need, in the hour of the final emergencies, when everything seems to give way beneath him. Now then, the glory of religion, according to this man, is that it changes all that. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are ways. The highways of God, the made roads that solve the problem and that transform and transfigure everything. Order. There is nothing, I say, that is more glorious and wonderful about this Christian life than just this very element, the order. What am I talking about? Well, let me hurriedly tell you something about it. This is the great message of the Christian faith. How are these roads made? We must start there, mustn't we? How does it happen that a man who was like a trackless wilderness suddenly becomes like a chartered territory with the great highways and arterial roads and the branches and the whole thing mapped out and laid out perfectly and everything in order and he knows where he is and what he can do. How does it happen? Well, you know, I've already given you the answer in one of my readings at the beginning. It's all there in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, isn't it? God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What was Paul thinking of when he wrote that, you think? Well, this is what he was thinking of. Genesis 1 and 2, first two verses in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, or if you like, chaos was upon the surface of it all. And the Spirit of God moved upon the surface of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And from that moment, the chaos disappears and the order begins to come in. And life, creation, comes into being and God looked at it all and saw that it was good. That's it. And you see, that is exactly what happens in Christianity. Into the chaos and disorder and this trackless waste of a man's life, there comes the operation and the activity of the blessed Holy Spirit of God. Oh, thank God it's still true. That's the thing that made Saul of Tarsus an apostle. That into the chaos of his life, God shined in the face of Jesus Christ as he had done of the cosmos at the beginning. And order came in into the disorder that had previously been the characteristic of his life. Oh, like a land being charted and mapped out and planned, the Holy Spirit begins to do his blessed work. What is it? Well, the work of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to repentance and to regeneration, isn't it? And what is this? What is repentance? Well, as I understand the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, and as it is quoted, you remember, in the third chapter of Matthew and in other places, this is what happens. 
Repentance is that which prepares the way for the Lord. Repentance is that which prepares us for the reception of the Lord Jesus Christ and his new life. What is it? Well, here it is. It's the command you remember to make a highway for the Lord. How is it done? This is how it's done. Every valley shall be exalted and every high hill shall be made low. The rough places shall be made smooth. Haven't you seen it being done? Haven't you seen it being done in this country? The road naturally went up and down or the land went up and down like that. But you don't make a road like that, do you? A kind of switchback? What do you do? Well, you take off these mountains, as it were, and you put them into the plains, and you've got a level highway. The Holy Spirit does something like that. The Holy Spirit is the greatest leveler in the world. May I use a modern illustration? The Holy Spirit is a divine bulldozer. He just flattens. He convicts us of our sin. And when we thought we were great and mighty and knowledgeable and that we could manage our own affairs, he just puts us flat on the ground and discovers to us that we knew nothing, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, that our lives were as I've been describing and that we are nothing at all. Every high mountain shall be brought low. And then when we are so low as to think that we can never rise and that we are hopeless and damned, he raises us up again. Ah, said the ancient Simeon to Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he held the infant in his arms, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel. The leveler, the new road that is made, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight a highway in the desert for our God. Repentance. And not only repentance, I say, but regeneration. The new life. The new faculty, the new principle of life that is put into us by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. For it isn't enough merely to pull down and to raise. You need some substance, some solidity. And you need a plan, you need a direction. And it all comes in Christ. Repentance, regeneration, the blessed work of the Holy Spirit. I mustn't stay with that this evening because I'm anxious to describe its results. But let us never forget that this is a work that can only be done by the Spirit of God. You see, mankind forgetting the Holy Spirit failing to realize that redemption is the work of God and of God alone, has been trying to save itself. That's the meaning of planning. That's the meaning of philosophy. And the world has been very busy trying to clear the trackless waste, hasn't it? It's been doing it for centuries. And we've been told that at last we've got the expert method. But where is it? Look at the chaos in the world this evening. Look at the utter confusion. Look at the nations. They know not where they are, and nobody knows where we are going. What's the value of your philosophy in the modern situation? Or all your art, and all that the world has produced? Is there a highway? Where is it? No, no. This is a work that God and God alone can do. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts. 
And they said, let there be light. And let the chaos disappear and order come in. And it comes. What does it lead to? Well, here it is. He gives us a clear view of life. He gives us a new way of thinking. The Apostle Paul, again, once and forever has put this thing so perfectly that I simply repeat his word. He says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he, because they are spiritually discerned. He says, this new man in Christ, he is a new creature, he is a new creation. Uh, no man understands him, but he understands all things. What's his secret? He says, well, this is it. We have the mind of Christ. A new understanding. Oh, my dear friends, never go wrong on this. Christianity is truth. And truth comes to the mind. And truth is intellectual. This isn't sub stuff. This isn't emotionalism. You know, the very first thing that happens to a man when he becomes a Christian is that he begins to think straightly. The highway of the mind is laid open. And he begins to see life as he's never seen it before. It comes, I say, and it gives him a new understanding. Oh, for the first time in his life he has a whole view of life. What do I mean? I mean this. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives a man a clear view of himself. Because he gives him a view of himself as under God and in relationship to God. And so he begins to see it all. He begins to understand himself and the causes of his failure and of his misery. Until then he thought that all unhappiness was because of somebody else. Other people not behaving themselves as they should. He was perfect. If only other people would be the same. But they were saying the same about him. He doesn't understand the whole thing is chaos. And then things go wrong. Why should they go wrong with me? What have I done? He doesn't understand. But the moment a man becomes a Christian, he begins to see it. He realizes that he is as he is and things have happened to him very largely because of his sin. Because of his folly in separating himself and cutting himself off from the life of God. Because he's made himself an autonomous being, which he isn't and never can be, but he persuaded himself he was. And there he is alone and he's cut himself off from the eternal blessings and all the consequences of folly. He begins to see them. And he begins to see that the whole world is as it is tonight for the same reason. That men are selfish and self-centered, and therefore jealous and envious, and therefore thinking of war and of, of aggrandizement, and each one wanting to be on top, and hating all others who are trying to do the same thing, and the whole world is upside down and in a state of chaos. He begins to see it all. So he is no longer bewildered as to what's the matter with himself nor with others. And thank God he goes beyond that. He sees how it can all be put right. He sees that all self-effort will lead to nothing. That all attempts at self-reformation are a pure waste of time. He suddenly sees that into this uncharted trackless waste, God has sent down his own son with the plan laid out before him, with a redemption, and he's made away. 
from man in his chaotic condition to God, to redemption, to order, to salvation, to blessings that can never be described adequately. In other words, let me put it like this, I'm hurrying on and just throwing great principles at you, but work them out for yourselves, my dear friends, and go on doing it as long as you're in this world. I'm simply putting in another form, you see, any typical New Testament epistle. That's what each New Testament epistle is, in a sense. It's just a map of life. They start off with their great doctrines, you see. And there you're given the understanding, this insight, this intellectual apprehension. There is no more intellectual book in the world than the Bible. Your own intellect and mind will never grasp it until it's been enlightened by the Spirit. But then, why I say here it is, food for the mind, something to look at for all eternity. Nothing comparable to it. I stand in this pulpit this evening to say, and I say to the glory of God in Jesus Christ, I understand life. I understand myself. I understand life. I'm not a bit surprised that the world is as it is this evening. Not a bit. I could have prophesied it. I began preaching 30 years ago, you know, when people were still optimistic. There had been one world war, but they said, it's all right, we'll never do that again. And they were preaching with optimism, and I began preaching chaos and sin and man as he is, and I prophesied that war would come. Of course I did. There was nothing clever about that. I simply believed my Bible. I simply had a view of life presented to me here plain and clear. While man is sinful, there will be wars. And it's just idle fancy and nonsense to imagine that while men and women are self-centered and selfish, that they'll do anything but fight one another in some shape or form. James, you see, has said it all. Whence come wars amongst you? Even from your lusts that are in you. No, no. There is no difficulty about understanding the world today if you were a Christian and if you believe this message. It's all here. It's a perfect, complete view of life. But let me hurry on. What else? Well, it gives us a sense of purpose and of direction. You see, this shows us that life is, after all, just a pilgrimage. And that we are only strangers and pilgrims and sojourners in this world. Christian starts by seeing that, and he's not depressed by that. No, no, he's got a sense of direction, he's working to a goal. He sees himself as a traveler. Of course, the people who are unhappy, you see, are the people who think this is the only life and the only world. And therefore they're horrified at the thought of death. Going out of this world is the last calamity. They say about a person who dies, poor so-and-so. The Christian doesn't. The Christian has an objective, a sense of direction. He has a purpose. Not only that, he has a system of living and order in his living. You see, the man who's not a Christian hasn't any system or order. He hasn't any discipline. He says, if I want a thing, I must have it. If I like a thing, why shouldn't I have it? Perhaps somebody else wants it. What's it matter? I want it, so I'm going to have it. Hence your divorce and all the rest of it. 
But when a man becomes a Christian, there is a way made in his life, not only an intellectual way, but a moral way. Those great New Testament epistles to which I've referred you not only have their great doctrine at the beginning, they then go on to apply them. They say in the light of this road on which you're traveling, don't wander there, don't wander here, go straight on. Moral understanding, planning, roads made, everything fitting in together. A great purpose in life, not only intellectually but morally. Blessed is the man, says this man towards the end. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And what makes a man walk uprightly is that he's walking along a highway. He's no longer crouching there in this trackless waste and trying to brush away all these obstructions. The road is there and he walks along it. A highway made by God. A way of holiness. He knows what he's doing. He's disciplined. He has a scheme of life. It's all there in the injunctions in the Old Testament and in the New. But I must add this to show you the complete contrast with the other. And this is in many ways the most marvelous and wonderful thing of all. They're all wonderful. And that is that this man having a highway in his life, when he meets his calamity and trouble and trials, thank God he knows where the road is. And he doesn't sit there frantically saying, if only there were a road and a way. If only I could get there, but I can't. I can't get through this brushwood. The road is wide open. When all things seem against me to drive me to despair. I know one gate is open. One ear will hear my prayer. The highway to God. It's already there. It's already been put within him. Christ has implanted it through the spirit. And he can go straight on to it. But let me close by putting that to you. In terms of the second picture which this man uses. Listen. He says, blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are ways, who passing through the valley of Becca, make it a well. Do you know what that means? What is this valley of Becca? Well, let me again put it in the form of a principle. The Christian life not only, not only brings order into my life, but because it brings order into my life, it enables me to rejoice even in the midst of tribulations. What is the valley of Becca? Well, another translation puts it like this. As they go through the veil of tears, they make it a place of spring. The valley of Becca, the, the, the authorities say that a better translation is to say, the valley of tears, the valley of sighing, the valley of sorrow. Some say that the very tree uh, which the reference is made to in this valley of Becca is that it was a kind of tear tree. And it was known as the tear tree. It doesn't matter. Whether Becca stands for some particular kind of tree called a tear tree or whether the word should really be translated tears itself. The idea is exactly the same thing. It's a place of weeping. And you notice he says it's a valley. Down in the depths. A valley always carries this idea in the scripture of being down in the depths. 
When we are in a place that is shut in and hemmed in, and when there are trials and troubles and tribulations, and everything is calculated to make us miserable and utterly dejected and disconsolate, the valley of back. And you notice what he says. While passing through the valley of Baca, make it a well. They turn it into a place of springs. They're in a place that tends to unloose the springs of our tears and the fountains of our eyes. Ah, yes, he says, but these men have got something within them that enables them to turn that valley into a place of joyful springs, of delight and of glory and of happiness. They make it, even while they're in it, a place of spring. Now this is astounding. This man doesn't hesitate to make that claim, and you will find as you read the Psalms that the psalmist is always making this claim. And thank God this is something to which the saints of the centuries have always testified. Do you know that the saints have always said this? They have said the blessings of this Christian life are always great and glorious and wonderful. But you know, they say, they're greatest of all in times of trouble. You read the lives of some of them who are even in our own lifetime in the concentration camps in Germany and other places, and you'll all find that they say this. They say with the author of the 119th Psalm, it was good for me that I have been afflicted. Yes, they say it's in the furnace you find the value of it. It's there. Now, this is the test of any view of life, isn't it? It's all very well to have a gay view of life while the sun is shining and when you're on your holidays. Here's the test. What are you like when everything goes wrong, when everything turns against you and all your world and all your dreams and hopes seem to be coming crashing to the ground at your very feet, in the valley of Baca, in the place of weeping, where trial comes upon trial and tribulation upon tribulation. What are you like there? That's the test. These, this man, according to the psalmist, triumphs even in the valley of Baca. What's he mean? It means this. He's no longer a victim of his circumstances. He was before. Ah, he was the nicest fellow in the town when everything was going well and he had plenty of money in his pockets. Ah, there was never a happier man in the world and he thought that religion was very morbid and very depressing. But suddenly he's lost his health. He's lost his work. He's lost his money. He's lost his friends. And he is down and out, disconsolate, miserable, can't be roused, can't be cheered, doesn't know what to do with himself, defeated entirely. The valley of Baca gets him down, and he can do nothing. He can try with a kind of stoical fortitude, not to whimper and cry, but he has no consolation. He doesn't know what to do. Not so this man. This man, blessed is this man, who passing through the valley of Baca, makes it a well. Turns it into a spring. You see, he doesn't just put up with it. He doesn't just manage to go through with it. He's more than conqueror. Oh, listen to the psalmist saying it in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Even in that valley, there's something that fills him with joy and happiness. Listen to the Apostle Paul saying it gloriously in the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. I know both how to be a best and how to abound. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I don't care where I am. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what's going on around me. I am what I am in Christ. And I triumph in him. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And again I say unto you, rejoice. Even in the valley of Baca. We not only rejoice in the contemplation of the glory of God, says Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But more than that, we rejoice also in tribulations. More than conquerors, turning the valley of Baca into a well, a place of springs and of rejoicing. What's the secret? Oh, it's just this. I've already been giving the answer. It's their view of life that enables them to do that. It's the fact that they've got these ways. You see, it works like this. What is the effect of troubles in the valley of Baca upon them? Just this. The troubles make them think all the more about God and about Christ. You see, when they were not in the valley, oh, there were many other things to do and the boon compared. But suddenly all is gone and they're left alone. And that in itself makes them go back to God. And to go back to God is to rejoice and to think of Christ and what he's done for them. And their rejoicing is increased. This is the whole secret of the Christian life. The more things go against us, the more they drive us to Christ. And the more we are with Christ, the happier we are. So we turn our valleys of Becca into wells and into places of rejoicing. And this in addition. Here I am, a pilgrim going through this world. I know that I start with that. I'm no longer afraid of that. I start with the fact of death. That I'm going to die and I don't know when. I'm not afraid of that. I put it down on my map. There's the road. I'm going along it. All right. Very well. I thank God for all the light the gospel has given me. But suddenly I find myself in a valley of Baca. I'm not promised that I shan't be sent there. Christ said in the world you shall have tribulations. But he said cheer up. I have overcome the world. Oh yes. The Christian does find himself in the valley of Becca sometimes. But you see, he turns that into a place, a spring of wells and of rejoicing in this way. He says, yes, I'm here now. But our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal Weight of glory. Ah, says the Christian, I am in the valley of Becca. My health is going, my powers are waning. My loved ones are taken from me. I know. Why should I ever have thought that that wouldn't happen to me? Of course it must happen. But it's all right. This life is a temporary journey. I'm only here as a sojourner. I'm going on. I'm a child of God. I'm a pilgrim of eternity. I know that there are weights a glory that baffles description. You see, he does it like this. 
He is able to say something like this, when all created streams are dry, thy fullness is the same. Whatever may be true of the valley of Baca, God never changes. And so he can go on and add this, the storms may roar about me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me. And can I be dismayed? Green pastures are before me, which I have yet not seen. Bright skies will soon be o'er me, where the dark clouds have been. My hope I cannot measure. My past life is free. My Savior has my treasure. And he will walk with me. My beloved friend, are there ways in your life? Is the highway of God and of Christ in you? Do you know where you are in this world? Do you know where you're going? Have you understanding? Is it all clear to you? Face it honestly. And if you have to admit it scares, go and admit it to God. Plead with him, ask him to do the mighty operation of the Holy Spirit, to send the bulldozer and to clear the waste and to make his own way in your soul that will bring you to himself. Once you know him, and once you know Christ, and that you are safe in him, whatever valley of Becca you may chance to have to go through, you, as certainly as this psalmist of old, will make it a well. Oh, the blindness of man in sin that doesn't recognize such riches, such glory, such an amazing offer. But here it is. Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Oh, yes, thrice blessed. There is no happiness comparable to this. Understanding, order, discipline, and a blessed hope that will never fade away. Amen.